Sometimes it admits the struggles of humanity as we wage war against one another, or intrigue against one another, or play our various political games. Sometimes the planet Earth likes to remind us that it's busy doing its own thing, and we humans are merely sharing its space. Sometimes natural events can ruin what we had hoped to do, beyond something as mild as raining on your wedding day. Events, natural events, can change our lives. Natural disasters can change the course of nations within seconds. Just over a thousand years ago, a brutal and terrifying natural disaster smashed into England. The likes of this disaster has not been repeated since, and its impact upon London may have been profound. Hi, my name is Saul and welcome to chapter 33 of the story of London, In the Shadow of the Archangel. We begin this chapter at the exact moment we left the last chapter. Remember, we've just seen a year of immense political instability, which had seen the newly triumphant conqueror, Sven Forkbeard, die only weeks after taking the throne of England, and then saw the return of King Æthelred, and had seen Forkbeard's son flee the country. And after all of that, in late 1014, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, quote, This year, on the eve of St. Michael's Day, came the great sea flood, which spread wide over this land and ran so far up as it never did before, overwhelming many towns and an innumerable multitude of people, unquote. The great sea flood, they called it. Notice not a sea flood, the sea flood. Like anyone who read those words was supposed to know exactly what they were talking about. It's like a shibboleth. Another contemporary writer at the time, William Molesbury, described what happened in the following lurid terms. Quote, a tidal wave of the sort which the Greeks called Eurepus grew to an astonishing size, such as the memory of man cannot parallel, so as to submerge villages many miles inland and overwhelm and drown their inhabitants, unquote. Something huge happened, obviously. But what was it exactly? With the passing of the centuries, there have been many theories. For some, it was simply a huge autumnal Atlantic storm, a massive low-pressure system smashing into England and causing a gigantic storm surge, the like of which has not been recorded before and probably not been equaled since. But for others, the description of the giant tidal wave sounds like an actual tsunami had hit England. The event was supposedly mentioned in Welsh Bardic Chronicles and said to have impacted Kent, Sussex and Hampshire and an account of Mounts Bay in Cornwall says the bay was, quote, inundated by a mickle sea flood where many towns and people were drowned, unquote. Geologists say they have 
found likely tsunami deposits at Marazian Marsh in Cornwall and Chessel Beach in Dorset from roughly the same time period, which suggests there is meat on the bones of this theory. And there are suggestions it was much more significant event than even this. In the Chronicle of Quedlingburg Abbey in Saxony, it records that many people died as a result of a flood in 1014 and said the regions affected by this included Jutland, Holstein, Friesland and much of what we today would call modern-day Netherlands and Belgium. This sounds like a tsunami, a huge wall of water smashing into northern Europe. Where on earth did this come from? The historical records are silent, obviously, but in 2007, geologists in North Carolina published evidence that the coastline of their state had once been protected by a chain of barrier islands and tidal marshes, similar to those that shield the mainland of the state of Georgia. Their conclusion suggested that sometime in the 11th century, so including our year 1014, either a Class 5 hurricane of significant size or a tsunami had destroyed these islands. Which begs the question, what if these events are related? There has, apparently, been lively discussions and theories that try and explain what's caused this event that seemingly impacted on both sides of the Atlantic. Forensic geologist Dallas Abbott of the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory at Columbia University claims to have found evidence of a large meteor or comet strike in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean which hurled extraterrestrial debris over 2,300 miles away to a bog in the Black Rock Forest in New York. The material was dated to around 1014. Abbott also found debris from a meteor or comet strike in the Lesser Antilles in the Caribbean Basin that also dated to 1014. If true, well, such an event we imagine would have been catastrophic. I mean, there are stone inscriptions of great flood along the coast of Mexico and Central America in the early 11th century AD also. But we do not know for sure. Still, it was investigating the studies by geologists that allowed me to stumble upon a few minor footnotes that suggest this huge wall of water, whatever caused it, was something we today would consider a nation-shaking crisis, even with all our technology and sophistication. In one study into the history of major landslides in Dorset, published in 1992 by Nicholas Smith, it says, quote, The earliest recorded landslides in Portland are for 1014 when great areas of the Portland Cliffs were destroyed by the sea, exposing large areas of stone which formed the first quarries, unquote. If this is correct, then this would have been a devastating, scouring event. And in 1990, another geology report, written by the late Major Hume Wallace, included this little gem of information in regards to the event. Quote, Great sea flood of 1014 devastates the south coast. In London, high tides rise above Roman Wharf and undercut Roman Wall behind. Unquote. The first thing that came to mind when I read that was a thing I talked about only a few chapters ago. That at some point, and we're not 100% sure when, but at some point between the years 
1016 and 1066, a part of the Roman river wall in London collapsed. And rather than build it up again, the city used the area to build housing upon. Could the great flood of 1014, which said undercut the Roman wall, have weakened it and caused this collapse? And if this attribution is correct, and the overall theory as to the cause is correct, then think about what those residents of London and elsewhere would have seen that day. I mean, that day would have begun with London having no idea what was to come. From out of the Atlantic, a wall of water, or successive wall of water, a surge of a tsunami, smash into England, powerful enough to cause the cliffs of Dorset to be torn from the land itself. It then races along the English Channel. After Cornwall and Devon and Dorset, it smashes into the coast of Hampshire, and then Sussex, and then Kent. And then it shot on into Frisia and continued along the North Sea coast of Northern Europe, swamping villages and taking lives as it went. And according to those scattered lines, a finger of this water, perhaps a small one, rounded the coast of Kent and shot up along the Thames estuary. By the time it had made its way along the twists and turns in the river, perhaps inundating the floodplains on either side at the same time, it should have lost a lot of its energy and power, but it was still a significant surge of water, enough to possibly swamp the wharfs at Billingsgate, washing from the quayside the goods displayed by the merchants, smashing their ships into anything nearby, and apparently the surge was strong enough that it undercut and damaged the wall behind the quayside so badly that it was crippled, weakened, and would fall over a few years later. Notice that throwaway reference does not say the waters destroyed the wharfs, just that the waters rose above them. Possibly any damage done to them or to the bridge could be repaired quickly due to the fact they were made from wood as opposed to the walls. But either way, such an experience would have been terrifying. Sudden, brutal, unexpected, it came without warning and left devastation in its wake. I must start at this moment that as much as I enjoy making this account lurid and rather vivid, we must add a degree of caution here. This may not have happened. Not just the London impact, but the whole tsunami theory. We do not find any accounts of this giant wave in the records of the Normans, for example. But I did find an oblique reference to a, quote, morphogenic storm events, unquote, taking place in Brittany around 1014, a storm so bad that it changed the land itself. The debate as to what caused the flood is still ongoing, and while I will provide powerful imagery for the listener, we must consider that maybe it wasn't a tsunami, maybe it was just an exceptionally bad storm. Be that as it may, an autumnal storm of biblical proportions or a shard of a tsunami racing up the Thames River. The scant references in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, I believe, do not give credit to the impact this event would have had upon the residents of London. And what justifies me in saying that? All right, simple. As the sun dawned the next morning on the feast of St. Michael itself, and London awoke to the possible aftermath of the devastation wrought by a huge wave the day before, no resident of that town could have possibly forgotten the events of the exact same day 
only four years previously. You see, back in September of the year 1010, the country was in the grip of an utter panic. The Yom's Vikings, under the command of Thorkill the Tall, were rampaging across England without mercy, the nation literally unable to stop them. London had fought off these Yom's Vikings in 1009, but they were seemingly alone in this. Town after town, region after region, all seemed to fall before these Vikings. In response to this calamity, the king, Ethelred, had decided to try and invoke divine aid for the country. He had issued a new coin. Without his face upon it, this one stamped with the symbol of the Lamb of God itself, who was clearly here to try and take away the sins of the nation. Up in York, Archbishop Wollstone, the former Wolf Bishop of London himself, had issued a series of new ordinances for all Christians in England to obey. On the Monday, the Tuesday and the Wednesday, leading up to the Feast of St. Michael that year, the entire population was ordered to fast, living only on bread and herbs. And each day they were to instructed to walk barefoot to their local church to attend confession. And their priests were extolled to go barefoot too. Can't we picture how the residents of London would have been driven to extol the spirit of the Archangel Michael to scourge the land of these Vikings? Can we imagine the fervent prayers of barefoot Londoners, their tummies rumbling, their faith ecstatic, sought intercession from the Lord? Inside the churches were no different. The fevered extolation to the Archangel continued. The barefoot priests in St. Paul's, for example, along with all the religious houses in England, had, by those self-same ordinances, been ordered to sing a new mass called Against the Heathens several times a day. And in every monastery in the land, including the Abbey of St. Peter's over on Thorny Island, every single monk had been ordered to recite all 150 psalms 30 times each and then after three days of this comes the feast of saint michael and it would have been especially impactful for london why well in fear of the ravages of the yom's vikings it had been decided that the sacred relics of the martyr saint edmund the former king of east anglia who had died at the hands of the great heathen army should be moved to london for safe keeping. Here in St. Paul's then they were met with great ceremony and no doubt strong near hysteric devotions. The Archbishop of Canterbury himself had attended this ceremony coming to bless the sacred relics. An Archbishop who only a couple of years later himself would be murdered by Vikings and buried also as a martyr in the selfsame church. This then, only four years previous, would have been the abiding memory of the feast of the Archangel Michael, a nexus for the devout London sin. How then, given that, would London have responded to this new calamity? On the day of the Archangel, the greatest warrior God had deployed against Satan himself after the nation had restored their king and ended the wars, 
had not the sea itself seemingly risen up to enact a great and terrible punishment upon the land. Was this divine retribution for England's betrayal of the king the year before? Did not Archbishop Wolfston himself earlier that year deliver a sermon where he predicted a great calamity would fall upon the nation for having turned against Ethelred, had not his warning just seemed to come true for me. As the residents of London possibly examined the damage done to their docks and the river wall of London that morning, as the bells rung out for this feast day of St. Michael, I believe they would have tried to come to terms with what had just happened. They did not know the damage across the entire land at this stage, but they would hear about it. Not for them, terms like storm surge, or tsunami, or shockwave caused by meteor impacts. But just because they did not know the science of such things does not make them stupid. Like all humans, they would have simply gazed at the world around them and tried to make sense of it all based on all the available data they had and how they conceptualized the world. This feast day of St. Michael had simply once again seen the land tested and struck down by forces beyond their comprehension and control. This was a reckoning. Their only defence then seems to have been to trust in their faith, stand firm in their resolve and loyalty to their king, and face the future together. But that future was bearing down on them like a wall of water. Out there, beyond the devastated coasts, out across the now strangely calm sea, out in a distant place called Denmark, a young prince was gathering his forces and watching and waiting and biding his time. A very different type of tsunami was coming. His name was Canute, and London was to be the subject of his very particular wrath. Earlier that year, Canute had been defeated in England. He had sailed back home, but he was not finished with the nation just yet. Far from it. Back in chapter 28, I described the probable motivations that had caused his father, King Sven Forkbeard, to invade England in the first place. One of the multitude of reasons was the fact his eldest son, Harold, was due to inherit the throne of Denmark. But to prevent dynastic conflict possibly arising, he wanted to give his younger son, Canute, his own lands. Canute was now back home, seemingly having failed, but his focus was to finish the job. When he returned home, he found his elder brother in firm control of Denmark. Twenty years later, an account claims that two brothers embraced each other warmly, in tears, and kissed the other's cheek. So grateful were they that the other was alive. True or not, immediately afterwards, it seems, Canute threw himself into building for his return to England. He needed men, and he needed ships. He began seeking out individuals from the vast network of Scandinavian warlords to gain support and resources from them. There was no Danish army. Neither his father nor his brother the king had ever centralised things where anyone could just call up such a force. And so he had to, in the words of one historian, quote, build a large network of 
personal supporters from the most important elites in the kingdom, balancing their egos, wants, and various pre-existing rivalries and alliances to place himself at the centre of this network, unquote. And two men seem to have made themselves invaluable to the young prince at this point. The first was a Norwegian called Erik Harkonnesen. He was a Jarl from a large estate located on the eastern outskirts of modern Trondheim. Erik was a long ally of Knut's dynasty, the Gormsons, and Erik was technically Knut's brother-in-law, having married Knut's older half-sister when the prince was quite young. He was a middle-aged man, tempered, loyal, experienced, and also, due to his brother holding the ancestral lands, a man in need of new lands to rule. The other man who became invaluable to Canute at this time was none other than Thorkill the Tall, the already legendary Viking mercenary we last saw demanding money from either King Ethelred or London the year before. He disappears from the English records after Ethelred went into exile in Normandy. Maybe he had led the Vikings in aiding the English king in his purge in Lindsay. Maybe that was someone else. But crucially, Thorkill had been on the opposing side to King Sven and Canute. The story goes that having finished his employment with the English king, Thorkill sailed back to Denmark. Here he realised he may not be granted a warm welcome. Apparently he approached the shore very cautiously and only landed when he had gained permission to do so, negotiated by intermediaries. Thorkill had immediately sought out Canute and asked the prince for his mercy and incentivised this mercy by offering Canute what he needed the most, intimate first-hand knowledge of England in the event the prince wanted to launch a new invasion. This, of course, made Thorkill invaluable to the young prince. And so Prince Canute waited, gathering support and men and ships. His men were not united by loyalty to each other, nor especially any real loyalty to him. They were more loyal to the opportunities his cause gave them. Canute needed to keep on touch of all these personal agendas and competing interests and attack as soon as he could, but he knew just how dangerous attacking England could be. His father had rolled up England in less than a year with only one battle required, and yet his own attempt to claim power had been dissipated with a single blow forcing him to flee. No, he could not underestimate England. What Canute needed now, more than anything else, was a political crisis, something in England to break up their newly formed status quo. Luckily for him, he didn't have to wait very long. Now, I must say, the purpose of the story of London is to try and tell events that impacted upon London as they happened from a Londoner's point of view. But I must be honest, as it's clearly obvious, this is a lie. I provide context and narrative to wider events so you, dear listener, can follow along with the complicated nature of things happening. And sometimes we lose track of London in all the miasma of extra detail. So right now, 
rather than spending an additional hour laboring over the minute of Anglo-Saxon politics, again, I will try and present the events as an average Londoner, not anyone important, would have seen them. Understanding all you're about to hear, the actual sequence of events and the stories behind it are incredibly multifaceted, myriad and complex, and it's filled with subtle interpretations of the primary sources and is open to endless debates and discussions. But what follows, I shall explain from the point of view of that imaginary Londoner, some resident of East Cheap, I'm picturing, able-bodied and a feared member. How do I imagine he would have seen and heard about the events going on? As 10.15 dawned then, this Londoner probably was concerned about the king, and above all about his succession. The king was not old by our standards, but as Anglo-Saxon kings go, he was getting on now. He had ruled the land since he was a child, and the pressures of endless catastrophes, political shocks and, and warfare had clearly taken their toll. So our average Londoner would have been fearful for the future. And this fear would have also been informed by recent events of the past. So not just the Great Sea Flood, but all the events before it, like the invasion, the fall of the king, London's defiance, the, the regime collapse, and then the return of the king. A lot of attention would have been given to the fact that the person who'd negotiated the return of King Ethelred had been the king's preteen son. Edward. Talk about a clear sign who is the favourite to the king and his queen, Queen Emma. Yet out there in England were the sons of the king and his first wife, Elfgifu. There was his eldest boy, Ethelstan, and then Edmund, and then the youngest of the surviving original brothers, Edwig. These sons were not like their father. Apparently they were very much made in the mould of the king's ancestors, more like Alfred the Great or King Edgar, Quick to temper, ready to fight. Warrior, Aethelings. The year before, the eldest boy, Aethelstan, had died, perhaps injured in battle, fighting in his father's purge of Lindsay. He had lingered long enough to write a will. In it, he was generous in death to all of his family, but not his stepmother and half-brothers, Edmund and Alfred. He gave them nothing, suggesting there was a split there. But to his younger brother, Edmund, he granted him his most prized possession and something that indicates what the brothers were like in character. He gave Edmund an ancient sword, supposedly once the possession of King Offer of Mercia, a mighty and venerable weapon for a warrior to wield. But if you were trying to guess what Edmund's personality and persona were like, you didn't have to guess for long. They were exposed very quickly because England was struck again, by a curse of a political crisis. The Elderman of Mercia, Idric Streona, Idric the Grasper, had denounced two northern nobles, one called Morcar and one called Sigfirth, at a public meeting in Oxford. Maybe they'd been denounced as having played some role in Sven's invasion? We don't know. Streona then promised the men a chance to clear their name, but then ambushed them, quote, where they were shamefully slain, then the king took all their possessions and ordered the widow of Sigfirth to be secured, unquote. He imprisoned the poor woman in the Abbey of Malsbury is what he did. This seems to have shocked many, as 
Wait, hadn't the king promised an amnesty for everybody a year before? Clearly, this sequence of events bothered his eldest surviving son, Edmund, who it seems had formed bonds with the people living in the eastern part of the Danelaw. Because London got word that Edmund got involved in this issue against his father. No sooner had word arrived in August 1015 that Edmund had released the widow of Sigfirth, then word arrived that he'd married her. With this done, London heard he had moved to not only take over her late husband's estates, directly taking them back from his father, Edmund then took oaths of loyalty from the murdered men's kinfolks. Immediately, the king's firstborn son was now the head of a powerful and disgruntled anti-king faction. As our average Londoner was coming to terms with the news that the king and his eldest son were at loggerheads with armed men massing, traders and travellers would have brought word that Canute had returned. This was what he was waiting for. Our Londoner and his neighbours would have no doubt discussed the possibility of defending the walls again at this point. Maybe he would have checked his weapons and helped recheck the defences of the city, the walls and the ditch around it. Word would have arrived that Canute had swung west and around the coast. He reached the river Avon over the other side of Cornwall and then followed it up by travelling into the river Frome and was raiding Dorset, Somerset and Wiltshire. No sooner had this news arrived than more news came that King Aethelred was deeply poorly, bedbound even, over his, in his estates in Cosham. London, dutifully loyal London, no doubt worried about its king. As 1016 dawned, the defences of the divided realm seemed to be in the hands of Eildemen Eadric of Mercia and the rebellious Aetheling Edmund, galvanising the northeast. By the time word arrived there had been an attempt to unite the forces, one where Eadric had supposedly tried to betray and ambush the young prince but failed, our imaginary Londoner would then be having to cope with the grave revelation Eadric Strayona had defected and joined the side of Canute. And worse than that, he had defected with 40 ships and their crews. Ships meant Canute now had an even bigger fleet. More ships could blockade the Thames, be used to attack the bridge. Our imaginary average Londoner would be part of a city now preparing for war. Battle was coming. An ominous sign was the poorly and sickly king came to the city to reside within its walls. Where he did, we have no record or trace for, maybe Aldermansburg perhaps, but the king being here was a bad sign. London was his go-to place for a final stand. And news soon arrived of how bad things were getting out in the country. To use the exact language of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, quote, This year came King Canute with a marine force of 160 ships, and Elderman Edric with him, over the Thames into Mercia, Cricklade, whence they proceeded to Warwickshire, and plundered there, and burned, and slew all they met, unquote. The shadow of war had fallen upon England again. Would there be some kind of archangel to stand between them and the darkness? It seemed there was. The rebellious son, Edmund, was gathering an army to meet Canute. Only the forces he gained 
would not engage the invaders, quote, unless the king were there and they had the assistance of the citizens of London, unquote. Now, while hearing that an entire English army would not fight unless you and your mates turned up is no doubt gratifying. Our Londoner would, like his neighbours, have remained in place. No order from the king meant he would not stir. As such, Edmund's army had simply gone home. London didn't turn up to help them. But now Edmund had summoned the National Feud, evoking the ancient words of Alfred the Great, the, the great forefather of his dynasty, and reminding all, including his father the king, that none may refuse such a call, lest they face the full penalties of the law. The old king roused himself from whatever sickbed he was on, and our Londoner took himself, grabbed a shield and weapon, and donned what armour he could, and joined his neighbours of the London Fjord, and marched northwards, towards Warwickshire, towards the gathering of the nation. This Prince Canute would face a united England, it seems, but it was never to be. The king had no sooner arrived than he left. Some said it was because, quote, when it was told the king that those persons would betray him who ought to assist him, then forsook he the army and returned again to London, unquote. Others said simply the monarch was just too poorly to stay in the field. Whatever the reason, no king meant the Fjord of London would also be returning home. London, remember, belonged not to any earlman. They were summoned and dismissed by the king. And if the king left, they left. After the waste of a few days to march north and then march all the way south, our Londoner would have deeply worried about what this meant. Canute was still out there. England seemed trapped in a miasma of indecision and outright treason. The king was poorly. All that stood between them and defeat was this one prince, Edmund, who seemed to stand between England and occupation like the archangel of biblical tales. But he was a man without an army. The future seemed hopeless and London waited for the shadow of this archangel to materialise or for all to be lost. And that's it for chapter 33. Thank you for listening. I do hope you enjoyed it and are enjoying the series as we're going along. I look forward to the next episode and I hope you'll join me in it when it comes out next week. For those who are interested, as I say every week, there is a copy of the script along with pictures and uh, maps and so forth for your enjoyment if you want to uh, follow the link and read that on Imgur. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then. Bye. <laughs>